Welcome to Legally Scaling, the podcast for entrepreneurs and tech enthusiasts seeking insights into the common legal challenges faced by scaling businesses. This podcast is brought to you by Ignition Law, a leading law firm for startups, scale-ups and entrepreneurs. Today we're joined by our head of real estate, Helen Lucas. Helen spent several years as a real estate lawyer at leading international law firm Alan Novery before joining property and private client specialists Boodle Hatfield. In 2015, she then joined Ignition Law, where she made partner and now heads up the firm's experienced real estate team. Her client base is wide ranging from entrepreneurs and startups who've never occupied a commercial property before, through to experienced property developers and investors requiring advice on structuring complex property deals. Helen, welcome. Hi, Jake. Thank you. I absolutely love that um, welcome. I feel like maybe you've missed your calling in life. We, we need to do the get the Jake show going, I think. <laughs> it's only so I can persuade you to come on the podcast again. Flattery gets me everywhere. <laughs> um, par- parking that for a sec, let's move on to, to real estate. So today we're going to focus on key considerations to bear in mind when leasing co-working space. So I thought I'd start by asking you, what do we mean by co-working spaces? Okay, so they come in many different shapes and forms and sizes, but broadly speaking, where we're talking about a co-working space rather than your own standalone office or building where you've got your own front door, you're in control of it, you go in, you've got the key, etc. A co-working space is going to be one where many people can access the building or the floor or wherever the co-working space is. You'll have your own office or room in it, um, your own space that you use, but there'll be a whole load of shared facilities in the midst. So There'll be other people wandering around outside of your office, um, using a lot of the same stuff that you do and accessing a lot of the same spaces. So co-working because effectively there's a load of other businesses co-working in the same space as you. Great. And you mentioned sort of having your own distinct offices. And I know with with some larger businesses, they might even take out a floor or part of a floor. But I've also heard about this concept of, of hot desking. Is that is that related to co-working spaces too? I guess hot Desking is kind of a further step. So that might be, you might have a bit like a co-working space, but you literally might go and use a desk for the day or for half a day or a week or whatever else, rather than with co-working spaces, what we're really talking about for our purposes today, where a business probably does use that as their main office or their main center, but there's just that there's lots of other businesses that use that building too, rather than probably on the whole individuals who are just renting a desk for a day. Right, got you. That that makes sense. And uh, I mean, who are some of the major players in this area, and why have them and, and co-working spaces become so popular? I mean, there's so many now. Originally, um, going back a few years, I guess WeWork were the one that everyone had heard of. There's other big names like the the office group spaces, etc. But now there are loads of you know pretty cool brands doing similar things, but all with their own kind of USP as to why their spaces are better than others. Um, So there's so many, too many to name. But I think they probably started becoming popular actually before COVID hit us because landlord and tenant law in England and Wales is pretty onerous on the tenant overall. It's pretty landlord friendly. So there's a lot of things in leases that kind of surprise tenants. They have quite stringent repair obligations. They can be hit with big bills at the end of a lease term, etc. So I think people were quite, some people are quite keen to move away from that more stringent kind of framework and to go into what is perceived to be a more flexible environment. Query whether it really is. We'll move on to that later during the podcast. 
But I think some of the highlights are you often get higher end facilities. So if you're a small company or a startup, if you're going to be renting your own office, it might be fairly basic. You're probably not going to have a huge budget for it. Potentially, if you go into a shared space, it's not going to be cheaper. You're probably going to get more facilities. So you might have um, a cafe, meeting rooms, you know, buzzy spaces, a bar, security, front desk, etc. You know, reception desk, things that you're realistically not going to be able to afford if you're going into an office for the first time. I think people are attracted in by the flexibility, the supposed flexibility. Often the co-working agreements can be on shorter terms than a standalone lease. With a standalone lease, you're, you're probably going to be expected to take two years as an absolute minimum, more likely five with some kind of break clause. Whereas in a shared co-working license agreement type scenario, it might be six months or a year. So for some people, that's really attractive. I think for some, you know, these places can be quite buzzy. There can be quite great atmosphere. You might get a lot of entrepreneurs and people like that working in the same space. They like the idea potentially of sharing ideas, you know, contacts, that kind of thing. So I think that can also be really quite appealing. It's quite a different offering than if you've got your own standalone, completely private office. Great. So I guess in theory, at least with caveats of what we'll discuss later on, it's the flexibility. It's it's the fact that it's less of a commitment. Um, there's that community networking atmosphere aspect and also getting to enjoy some of the trimmings that typically larger business get to enjoy. And you're just paying a small contribution collectively towards those trimmings, which is which is built into the license fee. So loads of positives there. Yeah. What are some of the alternatives? The most obvious alternative, if we're primarily talking about offices, which is what most of these spaces are for, is really to take your own lease. So certainly for Ignition Law, for example, we have our own lease. So we have our own key to our own front door. We're in control of that. It's, you know, we can use it whenever we want to. We've got all our facilities in this space. And for a lot of businesses, that could actually be really key because, you know, for us, obviously, we're doing a lot of stuff that's quite confidential. Like We maybe don't really want to be in a co-working type environment where there might be a lot of other businesses kind of milling around. You know, we might be acting for competitors and things like that. So really, a standalone lease is the most obvious for a business if they're not going into a more of a shared co-working type space. And I guess with with those sort of some of the opposite points apply to co-working spaces in terms of it being a more of an onerous commitment in many cases um, can cost a lot of money in the long term. You might not know how the business is going to go in the long term and could be a bit more complicated if suddenly the business scales very quickly and you need to break the lease. I guess um, there's positives and negatives about both. Definitely. It can be quite hard, I think, when you're looking at a lease to know where you're going to be in, say, five years time and think to yourself, how much space do I need? Am I going to grow quicker? Am I not going to grow quickly enough? You know, what kind of repair do I have to take on? If I've got a standalone lease, you know, I need to be really careful that that space is in really good condition. And then I'm not going to find myself with bills for repairing and making good some damage that someone else has done, etc. Whereas, I guess in a co-working space, probably your actual pound per square foot is going to be more because you're going to have more services, etc. But you're not really going to be worrying about, you know, whether the paint works good and that kind of thing, because your your repair obligations are going, generally, at least, um, are going to be a lot less. A bit like taking on a, a longer residential lease versus renting a room in an Airbnb. You've got flexibility on, on the one hand, um, maybe a little bit less security, but yeah, it's, it's kind of balancing where you're at and what will suit you, what will suit you best. Exactly. I think that's a really good analogy, actually, Jake. 
I was really nervous pitching that analogy to you, given your experience in property law. I was like, <laughs> is that going to make any sense at all? But it's my way of simplifying stuff in my uh, in my own head. I really wish I'd thought of that myself. I think it's perfect. <laughs> all, all yours now, all yours. Um, so, so I guess yeah, we've talked about some of the negatives of leases, but to keep it balanced, you know, we're yeah. lawyers. We like to keep things fair and balanced. You know, what what can go wrong when taking on co working space? It's not it's not all wonderful, right? It's not, and it it does vary provider to provider as it would landlord to landlord. Some have got great reputations and people love the spaces and some have been some have found that they've been caught out. So obviously I'm not going to be naming any names, but I should say this is a sort of a general summary. So um please don't shoot the messenger if you're one of the really positive um, great spaces to work in. Um, but some of the things that we've seen so often the license or you know the occupation agreements will contain clauses and paragraphs that the occupiers are not expecting and unfortunately they very often don't take advice on the way in they don't have anyone read it for them so they kind of sold on the idea that they've got this great flexible term and great flexible space and then really really get caught out when things do go wrong and the wording is not as they're expecting so obvious examples they often contain like automatic renewal clauses so You'll, you'll think to yourself you're taking on a space for a year. Um, but actually, if you read closely, there's often a provision in there requiring you to give notice towards the end of that year, probably in a really prescribed form, you know, maybe on an exact date or, you know, really quite difficult to satisfy. And if you fail to satisfy that, then very often these terms will automatically renew. So you could be stuck somewhere for longer than you intended to be. But worse than that, I've seen a lot of them with um, uplifts on rent at that point as well. So you'll be tied in to automatically renew and then find yourself paying 10, 15% more than you were the year before. So you're then tied into a space you didn't want to be in at more rent than you wanted to pay in a supposedly flexible scenario. So you can see how that could be quite a bitter pill to swallow if you hadn't kind of really understood what you were getting into. Another really big one, and we've seen. This We saw this a lot in COVID, as you can imagine, but it's one we've seen quite a bit, is that because these agreements are based uh, normally drafted as licenses rather than leases, that means that you don't have real exclusive occupation of your space. So in theory, the building owner could come in into your space whenever it wants, etc. It's not like a standalone lease where you really have control over your space and the landlord can only come in for example if it needs to inspect or repair something and normally only if they've given you notice in a licensed scenario in a co-working building in theory whether or not they choose to exercise that right is different but in theory the building owner can come in pretty much whenever they want but not only that they have the right to move you around so you might take the office space that you really love because I don't know, it's on the fifth floor and it gets loads of natural light and it's got a really good view. And then they find someone else who wants to take that space but isn't as interested in another one and they can move you around. So you could be moved out of the office that you think you've taken into another one. And we have seen this happen. Worse than that, a lot of them are drafted so that not only could they move you within your office building, they could even potentially move you to another building that they own in the city. So you could be moved to an entirely different area if you don't negotiate out that wording. Kind of sitting alongside that, an example that we had was a client that had taken 
a very specific office in a co-working building because with that office came a designated meeting room. This was a client that had a lot of kind of confidential work going on. It wasn't appropriate for them to have their some of their meetings in their space, in their general office space. So specific to them was they needed a separate meeting room. The co-working builder, building owner moved them into a different office without a separate meeting room. And the license agreement had full flexibility for them to do that. We had unfortunately not been involved in advising on the way in or we would have picked this up, but we were even went as far as getting council's advice on this and there was absolutely nothing they could do. They were stuck in an office with no separate meeting room that was wholly inappropriate for their business use until the end of the term. So again, pretty, pretty drastic, pretty draconian for them. And then I guess kind of more generically, things like you've seen all these fabulous shared facilities, obviously you, you should have access to all of those, but in practical terms, how many people need to use the meeting rooms? Are you going to be able to access the meeting rooms when you need them? Or is it you know, going to be kind of fastest finger on the button on the day that the booking comes out, for example? We talked a little bit before about less privacy, less confidentiality. For some businesses, that could be really key. You don't want people walking past your glass-fronted office, being able to see the paperwork and your screens and all the rest of it. You might have stuff that really, really is confidential And those environments may not work so well for that. And another thing I've seen quite a lot that people tend to gloss over is the co-working agreements will often specify specific providers that you have to use. So you may have to use their IT provider, for example, and you kind of could easily fail to notice that there were some extra terms and conditions and costs and things that go alongside that that you've inadvertently signed up to by signing your agreement. I mean, IT is the most obvious, but like telephone systems, you know, etc. Often they'll just be kind of tacked on to the back of an agreement as a whole extra kind of set of obligations that you haven't really realized that you've taken on and cost, of course. So, yeah, there's quite a lot that can go wrong. I'm not saying that it always does. But yeah, way more than people realise. It's the classic buyer beware, isn't it? I mean, so I guess to summarise that, with, with some providers at least naming no names, it seems that unless you're incredibly careful, you could be locked in for a duration and at a price that you hadn't previously envisaged, whilst also running the risk of having to compromise on confidentiality, maybe having a landlord enter your space, and even being moved to another space or building without your consent. So it's the kind of it's the kind of rights that would be enshrined, at least to some extent, in a in a kind of traditional tenancy that you're not getting with co-working spaces. Um, is that is that right? Exactly that. It's it's the protections. Whilst landlord and tenant law is quite onerous, there are protections in there, um, and you miss out on all of those. Obviously, if you're not entering a lease, so there's there's pluses and minuses for different types of business, different types, you know, different uh, stages along their journey and their growth, etc. What may or may be right for one is very definitely not right for another. So, I mean, with all that in mind, I guess the obvious question from a, from a business owner's perspective is, well, is there much scope to negotiate, given that I'm guessing co-working spaces probably tend to try to impose their own standard terms and conditions when, when entering into agreement? So can people try and protect themselves? Yeah, you can definitely negotiate the terms. Unfortunately, most people assume that you can't. So what tends to happen is you go and see your space and then you'll get a follow up with an email with all these supposed standard terms and conditions, almost just like in a DocuSign for you to go ahead and sign. In actual fact, if you are able to just sort of take stock and 
you know, read it carefully and take some advice on it, then there is quite a lot that you can change. We've certainly had a lot of success in changing or specifying criteria that are key to that occupier. So to do away with the risk of being moved to a space that is inferior or, you know, that doesn't have the meeting room that you specifically need. Or if there is, you you particularly want an office on a particular floor or whatever else, we can build in all of that so that, yes, the building owner can move you, but it has to be within the building and it has to be on this floor and it has to be, you know, with no less facilities than you have, et cetera, et cetera. So there is quite a lot that you can negotiate in if you think about it carefully. I guess if, if approached in the right way, you can try to explicitly cover many of the risks we discussed. And I guess in that situation, if the space provider is being particularly difficult about a certain term, that's when you need to ask yourself why. You know, if they're absolutely refusing to to remove the clause saying we could move you to another building, does that suggest they do it a lot? <laughs> and then therefore for them it's a key right. Exactly. And things we've talked about like automatic renewals, for example, that's certainly something that you could look at and try and take out. Things like if there's break notices or if there's notices to be given towards the end of the term, it's really important that they're looked at closely because what you don't want, I mean, I'm being flippant, but what you don't want is it to say it's got to be on a piece of pink paper and it's got to be flown in by, you know, um, carrier pigeon or whatever. I mean, obviously, (laughs) you know what I mean, but sometimes they'll say it has to be on an exact date, for example. I mean, can you get that exactly right with postage or delivery or whatever, you know? Those kinds of things, they don't look onerous, but actually they could really catch you out. And if you don't get them exactly right, you're then stuck for another year or you've missed your break or, you know. So all of those sorts of things are really important. Possibly, you know, if access to certain facilities is key to you, then are you able to agree that you always have right to, you know, a certain number of hours on certain days of the week, for example, to a meeting room, to a one of the other shared spaces, for example, an entertaining space, something like that. If those things are key, then really they need to be flagged at the beginning because otherwise you might take a space that doesn't actually give you all the things that you thought you were getting that were the main reason that you took it in the first place over a lease, for example. Yeah, so it's really it's trying your very best to protect the rights that, m- that mean the most to you. Um, I think, as an aside, if, if those carrier pigeon style provisions existed, it'd make the lawyer's uh, role so much more interesting, wouldn't it? Imagine <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, charging by the hour trying to train a carrier pigeon to give notice to WeWork in the correct way. Um, disclaimer, I don't think WeWork require carrier pigeon notice, but um, yeah, anyway. Uh, yeah, some good examples there. Um, and, and on the example point, c- could you give us some examples of where things have really gone wrong for clients that you've worked for in the past? Like some, are there any horror stories or it might be a bit dramatic? Yeah, I mean, the main horror story was really the one that I gave where the business took the space and they really needed a separate meeting room. And that was very clear at all stages, but that was not in the agreement. And so they were actually moved to something that didn't work for them. We saw loads of examples during COVID where some co-working buildings I mean I understand it they're a business too but they were sort of providing a minimal level of services so that they haven't actually shut the building so that all the occupiers were still having to pay because in theory they could still use the building even though they weren't actually allowed to go and use the building so there's just examples like that but in fairness to be completely balanced obviously 
that was, you know, a horrible situation. And that was true for a lot of um, tenants in standalone offices as well. So, but yeah, I think moving people around is a really big one that we've seen examples. One of the big providers in particular used to like to give occupiers incentives if they referred in other occupiers and if they took up space but then they didn't really like to actually pay those incentives. So that was something we saw quite a lot of as well. I imagine that was a very stressful time for everyone involved and it was all mm-hmm. chartering new territory as well. So um, yeah, it's uh, it, it was a tough one. So for people listening to this who are thinking of taking out co-working space, you know, what first steps should they take and, and how could firms like us and, and people like you help them? I think people probably get presented with th- these things as standard. So they think they're not allowed to negotiate when they are I think people think well it's only a short term I'm not paying that much rent I don't want to pay a lawyer to look at it but for these sorts of things they're often not that long we will literally you know take two or three hours just to red flag the key things you need to be aware of and then you can take it away and deal with it yourself so it doesn't have to be a costly thing but you know that couple of hours work could save you an absolute fortune if it avoids you being tied in to an agreement for a whole extra year you know, having rent is pumped up when you're not expecting it at the end of the year, getting in the wrong space, etc. So obviously, it's easy for me to say, but do take advice, but don't be worried that this is going to be a huge, timely, costly due diligence exercise. It certainly doesn't need to be, you know, we can always just do a, a high level review for you just to point out those pitfalls that maybe we're more aware of. Brilliant. That makes that makes loads of sense. So to finish up, I've got one final question for you, and that's which entrepreneur do you most admire and why? I, I'm going to massively cheat here and give a really legal answer. I, <laughs> I can't pick one, but there's two kind of areas of people that I massively admire. One is the huge army of mumpreneurs sitting at home and it could be dadpreneurs as well Jake I'm not you know ruling them out but the idea of the the parent sat at home looking after their kids starting a business you know the juggle we've all been there Um, it's epic and what some of these people are able to achieve is amazing so absolute shout out to them and then the other area kind of really relevant to Ignition as well because it's something we're super passionate about We're, we're just in the final throes of um, going for B Corp status at the moment. I absolutely love the passion and drive behind some of the people who've actually monetized and made a real business out of kind of planet saving ideas. We need so many more of them. And um, yeah, we deal with loads of them. And those are the people I kind of passionately support, I guess. Yeah, as you were saying, I was thinking this is this is such a huge percentage of the clients that that I've worked with with Ignition. And I know the firm does in general. We've I've worked with some incredible mumpreneurs uh, and uh, and also the, the the B Corps and the businesses involved in that. So um, yeah, yes, makes us a good fit with Ignition. So Helen, thank you so much for speaking to us today, and thank you to everyone who's tuned in to listen. If you are starting or scaling a business and you're looking to license, lease, or acquire commercial property, or if your business involves leasing or dealing with commercial property, don't hesitate to get in touch with our expert commercial property team via www.ignition.law. Until next time.